Hey everybody, so good to be with you this evening, wherever you're at, whoever's living room you're sitting in, uh, welcome, so happy to be together. Um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We have a bit to get to uh, this evening, and I want to make sure that we have time to get to it. So uh, Acts 13 is where we're going to be. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to just be looking at the same story uh, that Jake began last week. Really from this point in the book of Acts, the story turns and begins to focus far more on Paul and in the next couple chapters, specifically Paul and his partner Barnabas. So we're going to be in Acts 13, verse 4. Acts 13, verse 4. And it says this. The two of them, that's Paul and Barnabas, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now, the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So this is just an incredible story. It's, it's also a story that presents a couple different challenges, at least for us as we're coming to the text and being consistent with what we know to be true about Jesus and the movement of the Holy Spirit. A little bit more on that later. But basically, here's what's happening. Um, Paul and Barnabas, they're sent out. And they meet this proconsul. Now, what is a proconsul? They're uh, essentially a governor over a specific province in ancient Rome. So they're pretty high up within the governmental structure of the Roman Empire. Now, he has this servant who also happens to be a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet. Not a great uh, employee. And he feels that he's not getting the full truth. Or, or maybe he's been hearing about um, Judaism and, and how it's formed into this new thing called the way of Jesus. And he's just curious to know more about uh, Jesus without this sorcerer always speaking to him, convoluting things. Anyway, he gets Paul and he gets Barnabas to come to him and he gets the full story of who Jesus is and why what Jesus did matters for 
all of humanity, Jew and Gentile. Now, I don't know how all of this took place, but as I read this, I kind of sort of imagine that scene in Lord of the Rings where the king of Rohan um, has this attendant named Wormtongue. And uh, there's this scene where Gandalf comes to speak truth to the king and to tell him, hey, you've been taken over by these demonic forces. And the king can't really wrap his head. The king's in a fog. He's he's aged from these lies of Wormtongue. And uh, he can't really hear the truth because Wormtongue continues to do what his name indicates. Like a worm in an apple, this man, Wormtongue, is rotting the king's brain with his lies that he keeps speaking to him, even as Gandalf is telling him the truth. And you, you, can, you kind of imagine that's exactly what's going on in this passage right here. And look what Paul says. I mean, you can't, you can't fault the guy. He has guts. Verse 10, he says to him, you're a child of the devil, rough, and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. And I love this line. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? I love this critique because subtly within it is this truth. There are right ways of the Lord. Ultimately, the only being in all of our universe who gets to define what truth is, is God. And he doesn't stop there. If you remember, Paul does what really any person would want to do to somebody like Wormtongue. He blinds him. <laughs> you have to imagine Barnabas is like, what? Really? And he's like, okay, we'll talk later, man. Like, this is crazy. And it's slightly problematic for us because imagine, like, you come, when we're all gathered back together, you come on a Sunday night to Zane's Hill, and imagine Andoni doing this to some guy who's, like, interrupting the sermon. And it's like, I don't think many people would want to go to Paul's church today, right? And the problem is this. Paul does something that Jesus does not do. Uh, Jesus went around removing blindness, not giving it. So to be honest, I'm really not sure even what to make of this passage. It's one of those passages that I look at and I just go, I don't really know what this means for me. Should I be doing this? Is this something that disciples of Jesus do? What I do know is this. This is a moment uh, that definitely does not become common practice of the early church. Uh, there's no like how to blind people with Paul in the book of Ephesians. He's like Ephesians chapter eight. Um, here's how you blind people. Uh, there's nothing like that. It's never repeated again within the New Testament. But I do have to say this. Can you think of a time when blindness was given for a specific time period and it was actually used to help someone see the truth? Paul, right? It was Paul. Paul was blinded so that he could see the truth about Jesus. And in this twist of, this ironic twist that we see right before us, blindness worked for Paul. And so maybe Paul is trying it out here with this guy. <laughs> maybe he's thinking like, this man needs to see the truth. The only way will be a demonstration of power like Moses with his staff against the Egyptian sorcerers. And so he blinds him. I don't know. But what I really want to get at, that's I think maybe even a little bit deeper, that's what's... What's going on in this passage that is maybe a little bit deeper is um, I want to spend our time thinking about how Paul confronted a false prophet with a false gospel. 
And I think this is particularly important today because I see a lot of false gospels that are going uncontested. Uh, so what exactly is a false prophet? What is a false gospel? How do you identify a false prophet? Um, how do you know if I am even a false prophet? Uh, there are really entire church movements that are focused on this question. Um, I know of churches where essentially every Sunday they read names of other pastors that they think are false prophets promoting false gospels. Now, do we do that as Saints Hill at our church? Is that something that we do? Are we doctrine hunters? You almost kind of get this sense that there are some people, um, some even ministries set up just to hunt for doctrine. Are they orthodox or have they misstepped here or misstepped there? Could I see their words here and misconstrue them to see that they're really out of line with the way of Jesus and what's good doctrine? Well, I just want to put my cards on the table and just say that the best argument against bad theology is a person fully at peace and free in Christ. That's the best argument against bad theology. The doctrine hunting that I see not only appears insecure, but it's essentially based in fear, the desire to control what other people believe. And this is something that even God doesn't do with us. So I don't see it as my primary job or even any part of my job to name specific people or specific teachers whom I disagree with or think are dangerous. There are people I disagree with and I do think are dangerous. I think my job though is to give you tools for recognizing nice nice narratives that could sound Jesus-y, but in reality only celebrate the power of humans. Um, see, that's what a false prophet does. A false prophet promotes a solution to human problems that is not the same solutions that Jesus has for humanity. A false prophet promotes a solution to human problems that is not the same solution Jesus had for all of humanity. Jesus, in fact, he even tells us that we'll recognize false prophets by their fruit. In other words, we're going to recognize false prophets by the results of their solutions. What are the solutions they're using and what have been the results? Uh, Matthew 7, 15, here's what Jesus has to say. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, it's hard to recognize them, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus draws our attention to the fruit. Jesus isn't even out there naming who the false prophets are or who the, the bad teachers are. He's saying, look at their fruit. Pay attention to the fruit of someone's teachings. Pay attention to the fruit of what they're promoting as their solution to the human dilemma. Um, there's this uh, podcast that is popular among people in my generation, um, who feel that they've been wronged by the church. And while I disagree with basically all of their interpretations of the Bible, I every now and then pop in and, and listen to what they have to say. 
And as I was listening to this, it honestly like makes my stomach turn because I could see how close to the truth their lies were, which is what made them sound so good, so normal, so right. Their anti-faith stances veiled in this language of pop psychology promised to liberate, but it only wreaked havoc. What was the fruit of this podcast? Well, within the first two years of this particular podcast coming out, I um, counseled two uh, friends of mine at the church that I once worked at, and who had essentially, they'd been, both of them, left by their wives after less than two years of marriage. So just really fast, marriage over. And I, I asked them like, well, what was the, and these are separate conversations, what, when did you see the change in your wife? When did she, both of them had kind of lost their faith and walked away from Jesus. Well, how did this happen? What exactly was the road? And they both chronicled how they saw their wives changed when they started listening to this specific podcast. And I was like, this is crazy. Two people within, you know, in this church probably had many people who were listening to this podcast, but two people within the church uh, had their marriages essentially dissolve because, and were able to trace it back. I remember she started listening to this podcast. She started allowing worm tongue to speak to her. And next thing I knew, I didn't even recognize this woman before me. So I was just shocked by this. And I started asking uh, friends who had been influenced by this podcast and were listening to it, what sort of fruit do you see from their solutions? And time and time again, I would ask people and they're like, I, have a, I had a friend who was married and their wife ended up losing faith and getting divorced or their husband ended up losing faith and, and ending the marriage. Um, I saw that, that there were, people started telling me that they had seen from the fruit from this podcast was essentially pollution of the true gospel by social justice, um, anger, hatred of the church, undermining uh, belief in the Bible as an authority over our lives. And because of that, just this rise in anxiety for those who were paying attention to this particular podcast. And I think that these are just two questions um, that all of us have to ask about any voice that we allow into our lives and the solutions that they're promoting. Here's the two questions. Are, is that voice of that person or that teacher, are they getting the fruit Jesus promised would come from our connection to him? Question number one, are they getting the sort of fruit that Jesus promised would come from our connection to him? And the second question is this, would I want to live with the fruit that they're living with? So as I look at their leadership, as I look at their solutions, as I look at the fruit, do I even want to have that kind of fruit in my life. We must use these questions with any Bible teaching, with any cultural teaching that we allow to take up residence in our minds. Peter the Apostle, he also warns about false prophets in 2 Peter um, chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. What is the primary thing that a false prophet does, according to Peter? A false prophet denies the sovereign Lord who bought them. Isn't that interesting? Write this down. False gospels, false prophets, 
emphasize the role of humans on their own and deny salvation's effects. They downplay the gospel. They deny the sovereign Lord who actually purchased them, gave them a new identity full of power in intimacy with him. They deny the power of the gospel. Now, I'm hearing this more and more um, in the church and also culturally that now, in our cultural moment that we're in right now, now is not the time for the gospel. Almost as if there's just some problems that God can't solve. So we should just leave it to the government and leave it to policy and leave it to protest. This thinking comes from a belief that salvation didn't do everything, that when Jesus went to the cross, he left some things undone, and there are just some things that God can't do, and so humans have to fill in the gap, whether it's with social justice or promoting specific policies in order to bring about the kingdom of heaven through that rather than through the internal rule of Jesus Christ. And this is why all false prophets promote the kingdom without the king. All false prophets promote the kingdom without the king. Think about this. What is the kingdom of God? When Jesus comes on the scene, the kingdom is here, you know, repent and believe. What is he talking about? What is the kingdom? Well, it's really good stuff. It's truth, setting people free. It's healing, the healing of bodies, a reflection of what God's original intent for humans uh, was. Um, it's reconciled relationships, people who were at odds in a power struggle actually becoming brothers and sisters in Christ. It's loving one another and having love become your primary motivator. It's joy, it's peace. It, it, you know, in a phrase, when you think about what the kingdom is, it's heaven on earth. Uh, the problem is this, what makes heaven heaven isn't a social program or a collective effort towards something, it's the presence of God. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. So remove God from a people, remove God from a family or a culture like we've done in the United States, and watch as hell on earth happens. C.S. Lewis called the pursuit of uh, the virtues of the kingdom or the virtues of love, peace, joy, etc. The pursuit of those virtues without Christianity, without the king, is like removing the heart and asking for a heartbeat. Removing the vital organ and asking for life. Now, Notice in the text, this man bar Jesus, what does he do? Look down at your Bibles, verse six. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named bar Jesus. He's a sorcerer. He does sorcery. Now, that could sound sort of like make-believe or like part of a fantasy world to the modern ear, but what is sorcery? What is it? Sorcery is a manipulation of the spirit world for personal benefit. It's an appeasing of various deities and gods in order to get ahead in life. And sorcery is a manipulation of the people in front of you to get them to believe that you have a connection to these deities that is advantageous and that they should listen to you as well. In other words, sorcery is you playing God. That's what it is. So this is what every false teacher, every false prophet does. They highlight the opportunity of individuals to create utopia through collective manipulation. Listen to me, implement what I say, and we'll manipulate the rest of the world to fall in line with us. 
In our ever-fragmenting world, um, full of peoples grouped by their skin color or their economic status, or even a shared hatred of a particular people, the promise of the kingdom without a king is enticing because it doesn't require submission to anyone but you. If we all just love, if we all just get rid of disagreement, if we all just band together, the collective will be strong, we'll have utopia, we'll have the kingdom without that pesky king. All the while, the result, the fruit of that is cultural frustration because we never really see the particular and specific and ultimate issue of the human heart eradicated, which is sin, human sin. So, what are some false gospels today? I think this is important. What are some false gospels today? Well, I just want to look at two different ways of thinking that I believe sound good um, to even the Christian ear, but they need to be checked by the gospel of Jesus. The first false gospel out there that I see infiltrating the church with kind of alarming speed is the gospel of niceness, the gospel of niceness. In this view, in this gospel, grace, the grace of God, has no attachment to truth or accountability. It's a blank check, and God just looks the other way throughout the rest of your life. But the, the problem is this. Grace has two different definitions in the New Testament. One definition of grace is the grace that covers. It's the undeserved favor. It is the check written to us, so to speak. It is the, the covering over our sin and the forgiveness of our sin. But there's another kind of grace that we read about in the New Testament, and that's the grace that empowers. It's grace as an empowering presence of God with us, enabling us to live up to the Christian discipleship ethic. Now, I've seen confusion between these two uh, definitions all over the place, particularly in this cultural moment that we're in right now. Many buy into the grace that covers, but not the grace that empowers. And so what happens is you eventually get Christians who say things like, now's not the time for truth. Now's not the time for the gospel. I've literally heard Christians saying this. What that reveals to me is this belief, their belief is that grace can only do so much. Grace can come alongside, it can mourn with those who mourn. It can, uh, it can be the arm around the back for people who are hurting. Uh, grace can cover sin and it can forgive, but the belief goes that grace doesn't empower the individual to sin no more in the language of Jesus or to repent and believe the truth. And we shouldn't expect grace to do that either. This belief is dangerous. It's anti-gospel. Paul described grace that empowered him to do kingdom activity, to reject temptation, to preach the gospel, to travel, to work super hard to see the gospel reach as far as it did within his lifetime. It was the grace of God on him and in him that enabled him to do the impossible. But the false gospel is this. Being nice that definition of grace that doesn't have any accountability attached to it, being nice is more important than being truthful. Being nice to people is more important than being truthful. So we end up with people who are not free because they haven't believed the truth. And not only are they not free, they're not effective in the kingdom. 
Grace, or more concrete, the love of God and the presence of God with us does two things at once. It enables you to redeem your past sin, to redeem your past hurts, your past trauma, your past pain, in order to become a weapon for the kingdom. Grace is not on the defense. Grace will enable you to be on the offense. Christians have to be truth tellers. It's the way in which, empowered with grace, we hold the world accountable, or at least the Christian world accountable, to what Jesus called us all to. And the, the problem is this, is that it is not possible for people to get free without the truth. It's not possible for people to actually experience freedom without the truth entering into their lives, without them repenting of what they once believed, and believing in the truth. I think many have bought into the gospel of niceness because of fear. Fear that you're gonna be hated if you speak the truth. Um, fear that no one will accept you unless you post the right thing, unless you say the right stuff, unless you show up at the right place. But the truth is that Jesus gives us a relationship with him that is so deep so filling that even though he promises that we're going to experience hatred for the gospel, we're going to be okay. And we're going to be able to love those who persecute us. I really think, St. Hill, there is a spirit of kingdom thick skin and courage that is being given to our house, that we're going to be a house marked by truth. And uh, I don't know that, th I even have kind of this thinking or this idea that this maybe isn't even for this cultural moment or this time that we're in right now, but it could be. I just think that God is equipping this house to handle truth and to carry truth into some really difficult circumstances that we will face as a church in the future, he's developing a people who are so connected with him that they can walk through any storm. We are a people who know niceness, it's not gonna save people. So we're a people of the truth so that we can be a people of freedom. Secondly, the second false gospel that I see all over the place is this one, the gospel of group identity. The gospel of group identity. This false gospel essentially says that people are not what their individual character is or what they do, but they are what group they belong to. Let me say that one more time. This is a really important distinction to be made. This false gospel says essentially that people are not what their individual character is or what they do with their free will and with their choices, but that people are what the group they belong to is. This is basically the opposite of what Martin Luther King dreamed of when he said that I dream of a day where my children are not known by their skin color, but by the content of their character. And we're hearing this a lot today. It doesn't matter that you're not racist personally. You're white, so you you're a part of a racist group, therefore you're a racist. This is a demonic way of thinking, and it's the very thing that Jesus preached against with his entire life. Can you imagine if Jesus wouldn't go to Zacchaeus' home because he belonged to a wealthier class than Jesus? He belonged to a group that was unfavorable in the eyes of most Jews? Grouping people into group identity is so dangerous because God doesn't deal with people this way. He just doesn't deal with people this way. 1 Samuel 16 verse 7 says this, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. Amen. <laughs> just like, that's such, such good news. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
People may look at the outward appearance. Oh, they're just like all of them. But the Lord looks at the heart. And when group identity and the collective are the focus, not only does dignity and honor for the individual get forgotten, but the power of individual responsibility before God to use our choices to see heaven come gets thrown out the window. Instead of sin within the individual's heart being the ultimate problem, like Jesus identified was the ultimate problem, systems become the problem. And the more that we relegate an issue uh, to a system that is really a sin problem, the further we get from having the same solutions that Jesus used. I've said this so many times, but Jesus did not die to save a system. He died to save individuals from their sin so that they might be made alive. Jamie Winship, um, somebody who's influenced our house for sure, uh, he says this, this is just such a good quote. All external conflict comes from internal conflict. All internal conflict comes from fear. All fear comes from a false view of yourself, the world, and God. So we need to see this. Jesus didn't have 10 million solutions tailored to each person depending on their race or their personal history. He had one solution for every person. You must see God and know who you are to him. You need to see him and know the truth about yourself before him. As Christians, we should be wary of solutions to problems that do not include the dead coming to life, but focus on something even less than that. What I want to warn us of is this blend of the Christian heart for others, compassion, with the methods of Marxism. Now, I don't have time to go into Marxism and all of that right now, but I just want to say this. Everyone wants heaven to come. Every human who's ever lived wants heaven, but it matters how you go about getting heaven. What Christian Marxism essentially says is this, it's better to just get virtue into our societies, even if we have to make our states or some authority above us or the pressure of shame, even if we have to use those things to just force virtue onto people. The problem is that that's just not how God governs us. Eden shows us that God was willing to not have a perfect world if it meant that humans had the liberty to make choices and to even choose incorrectly. That's the value that God puts on humans' ability to choose. That value that God had for all of humanity must be our same value that we carry when it comes to what we profess to be solutions to the human dilemma. Jesus saw the ultimate problem of humans, not in social stratification or that some are smarter or richer or better looking or part of some majority culture. The ultimate problem for humans is that apart from him, they were dead in sin. So his primary focus was not social reform, but making dead people live. May we pursue the same thing with all of our hearts. So, a couple of ending thoughts to close. The first is this, a lie that goes uncontested is an injustice. 
A lie that goes uncontested is an injustice. And we see that heart in Paul right here. Paul understood this. He was sick of the lies from this false prophet whose words had wormed their way into the mind of a man who wanted to know Jesus. And so Paul did something about it. We should do the same. We should be truth tellers. We should stand in our speech and our action for the full gospel. And what is the full gospel? Just some thoughts for you. Maybe take a photo of this or write these down if you're real fast. The full gospel is this. Sin and death are the enemies of God. Jesus intends glory for every human alive. Every person is free and responsible to choose him and that road to glory or not. Hell is a real place for people who are outside of Christ, but heaven can come to earth to give people a taste that they might make the right decision for Christ. Every Christian has a role to play in doing the same thing Jesus did. Eternity is real, and the relationship that you have with God in this life is what will continue in the next life. May we contest the lies of the enemy, and wherever we find them, may we shine the light of truth on them so that we illuminate the path to freedom for those around us. Lastly, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. We're living in a time, culturally, um, where it's very easy to see that people of all sorts are struggling for power. That's essentially what we're watching. People are struggling for power. The fear is that on, on both sides, on every side, the fear is that they're not in control and that they do not have the power. And so they're trying to get as much of a cultural tidal wave to grasp power. I think this is a deep issue for every person on every continent down through all of human history. And this problem manifests itself. Uh, in questions that we have when we're maybe lying in bed and we get honest with ourselves or we have a moment where we get a level of clarity about our lives and, and where we're headed. And there are questions like this, who am I? Um, what is my value and my worth? Uh, will my life have any purpose? These are the deep issues of every human heart and the response for many is to look to something they do or something that they're a part of to feel the sense that their life does have meaning, does have worth, and that they do have a sense of power. But there is this paradox we see at play in anyone who is hungry for power. When our fears of not having power, worth, or meaning, when our fears motivate what we do, even if what we do is good, when our fear is behind our search for purpose, we will always come up feeling more and more powerless. So could Jesus have a way to get us out of this cycle? Could Jesus have a solution for us? I think he does. And it's not just to drop the desire for power, worth, and meaning altogether. Jesus says this, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So we need to ask ourselves the question, if we're being sent like Jesus, how was Jesus sent? Well, according to Isaiah chapter 61, Jesus was sent with a mission and he was sent with an ability. He was sent with a mission 
to preach the gospel, good news, kingdom of heaven, heaven on earth. And he was sent with the ability to actually see that happen. And, and, and so we have to realize that if, if we're sent the same way that Jesus was sent, then we're sent with the same mission and the same ability that Jesus has. So what, what do we say to a world that is grasping for power? What we say to them is power is on offer. Purpose is on offer. There's a mission. There's an ability that is on offer for every person, black, white, brown, male, female. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. We have all become one in Christ. And what is on offer for anyone who wants to be in Christ is the ability and the mission of Jesus Christ. We were not designed to simply be full of love. We were designed to overflow with love. And Jesus came to give you power, to give you identity, so that everywhere you go, instead of reacting to the power struggle that we're seeing around us, we become agents of truth, agents of love that spread hope and wonder. So that when people see our lives, they, they, they go, I wonder if God is actually that good. I wonder if I could shake off these shackles of fear and be free. I wonder if God has a plan for my life. You become a walking encounter with God. That's the vision of Saints Hill. That's the vision of this family. When you set all of who you are in him, when, as Jake said last week, when intimacy is the destination, then you will see the world around you begin to look far more like heaven. Go ahead and stand up wherever you're at, whether you're in a living room, your bedroom, by yourself. Uh, stand up, put your hand over your heart, and I wanna pray for you. God, I believe that you are raising up our church to be a church of courage that stands in the truth. Give courage to these people. Encourage them deeply right now. Wherever there's fear, God, would you bring that even to the surface? Show us that fear as we do this activation together. Show us that fear that we've had about other people, about ourselves. Uh, maybe it's a fear that our lives are never gonna matter. God, reveal that fear, God. And would you come with your love and would you speak a word of truth? Would you speak prophetically over these people that we might be filled up with you to the point of overflowing? Okay, Go ahead and grab a seat. I want to read some words. Um, and before we get into the activation, each of you and your groups, uh, in theory, have a sheet of paper with the activation that we've written to go along with this teaching. Um, but I just want to first do some prayer. So if any of these words that I'm about to read are for anybody in the group, if they're for you, I want to, once I finish reading all of these, go ahead and just slip your hand up and just say, I think one of those was for me. Or if you're not comfortable doing that, that's totally fine. You can reach out to us at hello at saintshill.church and we would love to pray with you. Um, so here's just some words. Uh, the first is for a gal named Julie. It's this. Um, one of, a person on our prayer team got this word. I felt like the Lord gave me the name Julie and that she has pain in her right knee area and that God is wanting to heal that. So Julie, if you're out there and you have pain in your right knee, reach out to somebody around you. Uh, people, anybody who's in Christ full of the Spirit can pray and see healing happen. There's no special formula, just in Jesus' name, knee, come into alignment with heaven. That's what we pray on earth as it is in heaven. Um, this one's for Angela. Uh, the Father sees 
sees you and he sees your mom. He wants to bring a healing to your mom and a restoration to your relationship with your mom. So if that's for you, we wanna pray for you. Make sure you let your group know and they're gonna pray for you. Uh, this is for a Jacob. Um, God has growth and new life for you, but part of getting there is surrendering and pruning things that will hold you back. Trust the words he's been speaking to you. Trust the words he's been speaking to you. Uh, and then lastly, this one's for Jessica. God wants to remind you that he has not forgotten you and that he is close to the brokenhearted. So Jessica, if you're brokenhearted right now, there's a promise in the scriptures that God draws near to those with broken hearts. And so even right now, I just pray over you, Jessica, that God would draw near to you right now. There'd be a peace that goes beyond your understanding and that you'd feel just completely filled up with him. Um, with that said, love you so much, church, and uh, enjoy this activation together. <music>